I just invite you to open up to First Thessalonians. This series we've been in for a season of time. We got two two weeks left, and uh, we'll be in chapter five this morning. You know, ideas are really, really powerful, but ideas alone don't change the world. I would put forth to you that ideas that are acted on are what change the world. So that is, until a daydream makes it into your daily schedule, it's dormant. It's a little bit like a seed that is sitting in your hand. There's loads of potential in that seed, right? But until it's planted, until it's put in the ground, there's no fruit. Until it takes root into the process, it's really just there as as something that could be. That's that's a little bit how ideas are. We're going to talk this morning about God's will. And we discover God's will from God's word. And I would propose this, that God's will is an idea. God's word is filled with ideas that unless they're acted on, they're just like a seed unplanted. It sits here with loads of potential to change the world. But if it doesn't take root, it doesn't really change the world. I want to confront a smokescreen um, that probably all of us in this room have used at one time or another. The smokescreen is this. I just want to know God's will. Okay, Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but here's how the smokescreen works. Instead of acting on what we know, instead of just living obediently, we couch our disobedience in religious, righteous-sounding words, like, how come you're not doing this or that? Well, I'm just seeking God's will. Here's a legitimate question that we ought to ask of one another, we ought to ask of ourselves. Really, why do you want to know God's will? Do you intend to obey once you discover what it is? Because if the answer is no, then all you're doing is playing a religious game. All you're doing is actually endangering your soul by taking your disobedience and putting religious words around it. So I want to kind of, um, I want to kind of confront this, this smokescreen. Um, why is it that this ad campaign had so much traction with us? I think it's because of this. I think it's because all of us know that it's easy to talk a good game and it's harder to just shut your mouth and actually go and do stuff, right? This was just a brilliant ad campaign and it got traction with us because we go, yeah, that's us. The church is guilty of this, right? One more Bible study, one more vision meeting, a few more church services. I need just the right song, more scripture study, some years at Bible college. What are you doing? I just want to know God's will. Are you living the will of God that you already know? That's the, that's the question that confronts us. First John 2, 6, it says it this way, whoever claims to live in him, talking about Jesus, must walk as Jesus did. I took that scripture verse and I made it the title of this morning's sermon because it really just encapsulates what we're going to be talking about. Knowing by itself is never enough. Ideas acted on are what change the world. Now, if you weren't here last week, here it is in 10 seconds. You could have saved yourself time if you were here last week and heard the whole sermon right here, okay? We talked about proper attitude towards leadership. That's where the text took us. And then proper actions toward one another. That is, how do I live as a new creature in Christ? Now that I'm a Christian, how do I do leadership different? How do I do relationships different as a new creature in Christ? And maybe you were left with this, how can I possibly respond to leaders the way that the Bible calls me to respond to leaders? How can I possibly um, live the way that, it, that the Bible calls me to live in relationship? 
As in all things, Christ is the ultimate example for us to follow. There's a guy by the name of Bob Goff. He wrote a great little book called Love Does, and he's actually the U.S. ambassador to Uganda, and he heads over to Uganda several times a year. He tells the story of where he's leaving Uganda at one point, heading to the airport. He's in this open jeepney, and there's some kids that are there, and so he's kind of waving. He's like, hi, kids. You know, he's kind of waving goodbye to them as he heads off the airport. And he said, pretty soon, there's, there's not just five kids, but there's ten kids, and they're running after the jeep. And he's like, hi, kids. He just keeps waving at them. Hi, kids. Pretty soon, there's 30 kids, and then 50 kids are running after this jeep. And he's like going, what is happening? So he turns to his driver, and he goes, he goes, what's the deal? Why are these kids excitedly following? He said, because this means follow me. You're, you're beckoning them to come. And he tells that story, and it kind of dawns on me that maybe we get our wires crossed with Jesus. Right? Jesus is saying, follow me, and we're going, hi, Jesus. You know, we think Jesus is just someone to just kind of wave at. Hi, Jesus, I see you. And the more he waves, the more we just go, I see you. And he's saying, no, follow me, come after me. So, if you are a leader in the body of Christ, if you hold some kind of a leadership position in the church, taking up the towel, Jim just mentioned that Jesus at the, at the Lord's Supper, he took up the towel, that is, he dressed the part of the servant. But he didn't just dress the part of the servant, he got up from the table and he actually did the chore. So if you are a leader in the church, the way that Christ is your example is to actually get up and do the chore. Get low and serve people. That's how you are to lead in the church. If you are a follower in the flock of God, you are to do what Philippians 2 says, and your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who though being in the very nature of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in obedience as a man, he humbled himself, catch this, and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. If you are a brother or a sister in God's family, and if you're in God's family, by default, you are a brother or sister. Romans 15 says this, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of you please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Here's the example to follow. For Christ did not please himself. In three short verses that literally took me a few moments to pull up and slap on a keynote slide, we have just a tiny snippet of this new life God calls us to. I've intentionally used three different words for the church that are biblical, the body, the flock, and God's family. I've intentionally shown you a few different realms that are often hot spots and problem areas as we try to get along, as we try to do this thing called life, and Christ as the example don't you see that, that Christ, um, who, who is the Lord, he's the one serving. He's the one living in obedience. He's the one pleasing others. Isn't that a fantastic, beautiful picture of the gospel? If we were to live these things out, it would actually release the gospel, the power of that idea, as we live these things out in community. But note that he's not just setting an example for us to marvel at, for us to wave at, for us to like on Facebook. He's setting us an example to follow, to live after the pattern of who he is. We must act. Let me read the passage this morning that we're going to look at. Starting in verse 16, 
chapter 5, it says this. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Any questions? I mean, there it is, right? Go and live this. Rejoice. Go pray. Go be thankful. Amen. Right? What does amen mean? Let it be so. Let's just, let's just go and do this. This is God's will. God's will isn't only these things, but it certainly isn't less than these things mentioned in this passage. You know, if we live this well inside the church, those who are outside the church will have to rework their view of Christians. I don't know if you've noticed this. And again, I think Jim said this well. If you haven't noticed this, maybe Jesus is too much on the inside and he's, and he's not being let out by your life. But the world, those outside the faith, those outside the church, don't view Christians in a very flattering kind of a way. Anti-homosexual, mean and judgmental, too political, oppressive of women, anti-abortion. These are some of the leading things that people come at Christians with. These are some of the leading things that say, this is what a Christian is. It's interesting when you kind of see how we are portrayed, a Christian, um, not just in the media, as if we could just kind of blame it there, but in public perception, the way people have grabbed onto ideas about things. It makes me wonder, like, when did Christians get known for being so negative, right? All the things that we're against. Now, a Christian being misunderstood is absolutely nothing new. Uh, in the first century, they actually thought Christians were cannibals, and they thought they were incestuous. That is, that they married and had, you know, relations with their family members. Here's why. They celebrated what we just celebrated, communion. This is my body. This is my blood. Eat and drink. Right? Can you see how that's a headline-grabbing idea that gets discussed around the, the town center about what these Christians are doing? And then incestuous because I am married to my wife and they see that I treat my wife a certain way and yet I might call her sister as a Christian. Now here's the deal. Christians are misunderstood by those outside the church until they come in contact with a real Christian. Not a super Christian, just a real Christian who will open their mouth and bear witness. No, 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 that's not us at all. We're not cannibals. You don't have to be afraid of coming to our church. We're not going to eat you. Right? That's just a misperception. That, that's not it at all. So when you just meet a normal Christian, a regular Christian, it ought to completely change that person's perception. Now, when someone comes across you in your faith, joyful, God-reliant in prayer, full of gratitude, are these the perceptions that you give off to people who are outside the church? You know what I would love our church to be known for? I would love this to be known as a joyful place. I would love it to be known as a house of prayer, a place where we just, we, we instinctively run to God. I would love to know that we are constantly, we're, we're just some of the most thankful people in the whole city. Wouldn't it also be cool that if people started hanging around here and they didn't subscribe to our ideas, 
that they realize, man, these people are passionate about helping victims. I can't put my finger on it, but these people have some, some of the strongest marriages. There's something different about the families here than I've seen anywhere else. Gosh, there's something about this place that they seem to have some kind of a secret about loving across all kinds of dividing lines, not just race. I would love if those were the things. You know, as you head into um, the town of Los Banos, I know it used to be, I haven't driven there in maybe a year or two, but there used to be a billboard um, with a pastor and his wife of, of some local church. And it's budget season, so I've actually put in the budget um, for us to have a, a big billboard um, off of, I'm on an expressway and, and 85 of me and Becky. And so we're just, it's going to be our picture. The elders haven't approved it yet. But, but I've been really wrestling, and you guys could maybe help me out. I'm trying to wonder what kind of pose should we strike to represent neighborhood Bible church, right? Here's some of the ones I'm thinking about. I think that if, I think that if we were both, you know, kind of the camera's here, and she's looking over my shoulder, and we're both intently looking at the Word of God, that would communicate that we really believe and preach the Word of God. That's one, okay? Another one is if we're just rapturously looking up. Like this, right? And as people drove through town, they would say, those people have their eyes on God. Maybe we just look intently at the camera like this, so as you drive by, they go, I'm going to be challenged to live the Word of God there, right? Maybe I'm giving a sandwich to a homeless person, and we can just capture that moment unawkwardly and just show these people really care about the disenfranchised. Do you see what a challenge this is? I mean, what kind of pose are we going to put on our billboard? I'm not really going to do that. You're like, okay, because I wasn't going to give it offering today. Um, but, but here's the thing. What if, what if you, what if you individually represented neighborhood Bible church? Let me ask a few questions. How joyful would our church be? I mean, if you were the sole representation, not on a billboard, but, but, but in people's lives, how joyful would, would neighborhood Bible church be? Um, are we a church of prayer? If you represent the church? How about this? Is thankful a way that we as a church would be characterized? Would there be a sense of the Spirit's presence in our worship gatherings by how you represent the church? How about our tolerance for evil? What's our church's reputation? Here's the catch. We are collectively what we are individually. That is, the family of God, the body of God, is made up of different members. And because your life really does preach to a segment of our city that I will never reach and that us collectively will never reach, but you individually will reach, your life preaches a sermon. It's as if you're a walking billboard communicating what Christians are like. Uh, let me just state the obvious. We have been using um, this clock over here to kind of communicate some different ideas that are in the text of this little book. And um, right from our text this morning, rejoice always. This isn't found just here in the letter. All through the, all through the letter, he's saying, man, as you're anticipating the return of Christ, even though things are hard, rejoice. And then this comes up time and again as well. But pray all the time. Those are the two sort of just pithy ideas that we're going to we're going to latch on to. So, if you're taking notes, you can jot a few things down if you'd like. Be joyful is the first command. You know this is commanded some 70 times in the New Testament. 70 times to be joyful. Even when things go wrong, you can have joy. How is that possible? 
It's possible because of the promises of God. This is going to be a real question that I want real responses to, okay? What are some of the promises of God, some of the things that we know from God, and don't feel like you need to get the Scripture word perfect, and I'm not going to quiz you on what chapter, book, and verse it's from. What are the things that you know of God that empower you to have joy even in the midst of a cruddy time in your life? Yeah. I am with you always. He's in control. What else? You were worth dying for. Can't be separated from the love of God. Salvation, absolutely. And it is, it is good to think on and rehearse and review and remember and even dramatize with communion the truths that hold us together, people. This is how we can have joy even when our circumstances are in the dump. Because God has promised us some things. You know, long before hungry souls searched Amazon or searched Barnes and Nobles, if those even still exist, for the secret of joy, how to have lasting joy, how to rise above your circumstances, how to get through difficult storms in life, Paul the Apostle wrote a manifesto on joy. It's called the Book of Philippians. And it's sitting in the best-selling book of all time and year after year, which is the Bible. Here's the kicker about that book. Where was the letter to the Philippians that was written by the Apostle Paul. Where did he write the letter from? A Roman jail cell. Why was he in jail? He was in jail for preaching the truth. He was in jail for doing good. And when light is, is, is brought into dark places, people squint, don't like the light, and throw him in jail. So while he's in jail, he writes this manifesto about joy. Let me give you just a couple of highlights. He's joyful partners in ministry. He's sitting in a jail cell for doing ministry, for doing good, for doing God's word, for speaking the truth in love. And he's just joyful that people are, are partnering with him in that. He's joyful that Epaphroditus has recovered from his illness. He's joyful that more people were hearing about the saving power of Christ, even though some of the people who were preaching Christ were doing it for selfish motives. Still joyful that people were hearing the gospel. He was joyful that God was leaving him alive so that more people could be helped. He was joyful that the church was unified in heart and mind. When it's written here to the first Thessalonians, when it's written, rejoice always, that is not an invitation to come and be happy. That's an invitation to worship. It's an invitation to remember like we did with communion, to remember and rehearse and call out these promises that we just said to one another that are on the tips of our tongue. The circumstances, the drama that goes on in our life, that ebbs and flows, it will never change some foundational things that simply are. God is crazy about you in Christ Jesus. We don't work at all for his love or his approval or somehow his mercy so that he'll overlook our sin. Settled and done. That's what justification is all about. That's why we look back to the cross even as we look forward to the return of Jesus Christ. That just is. And your circumstances can't change that. We have a dog named Finn. He's a black lab. 
And Finn, no matter what kind of day he is having, all I have to do is just say his name, and he will do one of a couple of things. He's a black lab, so 90% of the time, he's in a good mood and he's having a good day, right? That's just black labs in general. So 90% of the time, he will get up and he'll come over, tail wagging and all of that. But even when he's super tired, it's the end of the day, um, and he's laying there and he just kind of has his head on his side, and I'll, all I have to do is just go like this. I just go, Finalicious. And you know what he does? His little tail just goes, whack, whack, whack. And his, he doesn't even lift his head. His head's still like this. He just looks at me, wag, 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 wag. Oh, buddy, wag, 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 wag. Right? And that's all I have to do any time of the day or night. All I do literally is I just say his name. And it's almost like it's involuntary. His tail is just wagging. And, and I thought about this. I thought, man, what if Christians, I mean, isn't this true of Christians? That no matter what's happening in our day, no matter what kind of day we're having, no matter how tired we are, how energized we are, or anything, when we really just get that thought, when God impresses upon us, I'm crazy about you. Jesus loves me, this I know. When that lodges in our brain, there's a little wag that goes on in our soul, isn't there? Man, we look up from our tiredness. We go, yes, that's so true. I have given you purpose, Dave. Wag, 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 wag. You are gifted to love and serve and give your life away in radical ways. Wag, 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 wag. I mean, this is what it means to rejoice always. Let's not be guilty of the sin of being boring and gloomy people. That is a sin for a Christian to be that. Here's the next thing, is to pray. Does God really hear the simple prayer of a child? Absolutely. In fact, here's the beautiful thing. He recommends it. He recommends that kind of prayer. Unfiltered language, uneducated, unspectacular, unimpressive, just heart cries of a child. John Piper writes this. He says, God loves to bless his people. But even more, he loves to do it in answer to prayer. Do you know that the Greek word that was used by Paul to describe uh, this this idea of without ceasing is is an adverb that that was used to describe a hacking cough. Ever had that just sort of nagging cough that keeps coming all through your day, right? It's just, it's just on and on. Pray without ceasing. Pray, <coughs> pray like that, that thing just involuntary, <coughs> just keeps coming back, right? What stops it? The only thing that stops that is falling asleep. And even when you fall asleep, sometimes aren't you woken up by that same nagging cough when you have a cough? What a cool picture of prayer. Kind of annoying picture if it's a cough, right? But what a good picture of just involuntarily, just kind of having the habit of keeping that conversation going. And, and aren't you like me? Aren't you sometimes awakened from sleep with a, with a call to pray? Don't you just wake up and the first thing you think of is a person's name or a situation, and you're, just, you're actually woken up by prayer, kind of like you'd be woken up by that nagging cough? Paul didn't expect his readers to be in prayer every minute without, interrupt, without interruption, but rather continually be in prayer. That is, pray at church, pray at meetings, pray at meals and bedtimes, and then continue. Pray at the gym and pray on your commute and pray in those, in those lines that you stand in at the store and 
pause in the middle of your day and, and, and return back to center. Say, God, I'm frazzled. My boss is killing me. My deadlines are freaking me out. Run to God in prayer. While this prayer, quite simply, because the goals of Christians are well beyond the goal or are, are, are well beyond the reach of Christians. The goals of the Christian life are well beyond the reach of the Christian. Let me rattle off a few. Share generously. Live a noble and selfless life. Keep yourself unstained from this world. Love your brothers and sisters as you to have them love you. Love your enemies. Do you see why we need to pray? Because the things we aspire to are out of our reach. So pray. Run to God in prayer. I appreciated the example of someone from our church this week that just said, hey, can you pray for this situation? And I just said, man, thanks for the example of running to God in prayer. Thank you so much for just reminding me and reminding a group of us that that, that's what we do. That's what we instinctually do is we run to God in prayer. Prayer is the translation into a thousand different words, this single sentence found in John chapter 15. Apart from me, Jesus talking, apart from me, you can do nothing. That launches us into prayer, right? When we really understand that, that launches us into prayer. Here's the negative side of it. How much of your day, how much of your emotional energy is spent doing that nothing apart from Christ? If we're honest, we, we probably think a lot more things are up to us than they really are. We begin to run around and be frazzled and manipulate and control and try to figure out and worry and stress and plan and do all these things. And sometimes at the end of it, we'll go, oh yeah, maybe I should pray. Maybe I should take all my plans and just commit them to the Lord. Instead of the starting point being prayer. Pray what? Here's a few ideas. We've talked about this in the past, but praying the scriptures means you'll never run out of things to pray for. If your prayers always say, Father God, Father God, Father God, Father God, guess what? He's revealed himself as more than Father God. That's a great way to pray. But he's revealed himself in a myriad of ways. Just begin to pray the scriptures, and you know what you'll discover? You'll discover that he's the great provider. You'll discover that he's the God of angel armies. You'll discover that, that he's closer than a brother, right? You'll begin to discover, and God will reveal himself in ways he's already revealed in scripture in a different way as you pray. How about just thankful prayer? How about intercessory prayer? That is praying for other members' needs of the church. How about evangelistic fervor? Understanding that the deep need of people is more than the stuff we can give to them. It's a work of the Holy Spirit and praying for that. How about praying for leaders and governments and the city that you live in? How about praying for mission uh, missions effectiveness, both close and far? Uh, we had about 20 of our church members leave at 4 this morning to head down this week to Grace Children's Home in Mexico. Be in prayer for our brothers and sisters down there. How about praying for peace and justice and environmental uh, stewardship and the poor and the homeless and the sick and addicts and the bored? How about praying for kids in your home? How about praying for kids in the homes of our church members if you don't have kids living in your home? How about praying for all of the stuff that worries you to no end? How about just praying and including God in all the stuff that thrills you to no end. 
Do you see that we could go on and on? And there's just a, a wide variety of how and what to pray for. Next, he says, be thankful. You know, constant grumbling and ingratitude have no place in the Christian church. There's no place for that in God's family. I know that you're asking this question, is it really possible or reasonable or even good to give a command that we're to be thankful in all circumstances? I mean, really, isn't that kind of simplistic? Isn't that kind of naive? I think the answer is that it is good. We have knowledge that God is working. We've seen it in the past and we see it today and we trust it for the future. Romans chapter 8 says this, And we know that God causes how many things to work for good? All things. Do you know this? If you know this, then you don't struggle with this passage of Scripture to be thankful in all circumstances. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. You ever talk to yourself? Do you know it's biblical to talk to yourself? Some of the ways you talk to yourself are probably unbiblical, right? But it is is biblical to talk to yourself. Here's right from Psalm 103. Soul, listen up. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Look at these words, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. And it's good to review the reality that God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. I got some input this week from some of those in our midst who are living in what feels like storm after storm after storm is battering them from all different directions. And I just said, can I get some of your input here? I don't want to preach this in an insensitive way. How does this land on your ears as one who's going through the storm? And some of the feedback that I got, not just from this person, but this person reached out to several others who were, who were hitting it, just revealed some truth and some perspective on some things. It led me to think this. Show me a Christian who isn't thankful, and I'll show you one who has amnesia and must be reminded. Or else is mistaken, must be saved. It's quite possible that if you don't have something to be thankful for, that you're just not saved. That you kind of receive some pseudo-gospel that really has no power to have you rise above your circumstances. It's so amazing. Once again, Jesus is our example. Does Jesus identify with us in the storm? Absolutely. Absolutely. He's one whose heart breaks for his children who walk through the storm. Because he's walked through it. And yet, he walks through it with us and brings us through to the other side. Over and over again, this person shared some different perspectives. People were texting her back all over the place. 
And you know what came up time and again is the word thankful. When I'm not thankful, I get locked into self-pity. I get locked into anger. I get locked into wonder and confusion. But you start to open up thankfulness, and it's a game changer because it lifts your eyes to the deeper truths and deeper realities that your circumstances can't touch. One told me this. You know, I used to always, always, always pray for healing. And the things I longed for were physical healing. I came into this thing looking for physical healing. God has yet to heal my body, but he's healed my marriage. He's healed my mind. He's healed my soul. He's rescued me. I had so much more than I ever asked for. I was asking for physical healing. How long does physical healing last for a person who's an eternal creature? Very short snippet of time. I thought, man, what a perspective. And this person doesn't have the happy, glorious story. You're cured! She's still walking through it. But she pauses and gives thanks. You know, these things, rejoice and pray and be thankful, sound quite doable until you add the the, uh, adverbs to it, right? When you add always, without ceasing, and in all circumstances, you're kind of like, "Uh, come again? What was that? Excuse me? That's where it gets really challenging. There's a certain emphasis to these that have this common feature. Let these be continuous. Live your life in such a way that these just never end. You know, last week God spoke to us about our attitude toward toward authority. Even as that week, headlines were being made that policemen were being shot in the streets of Dallas. And what's our text for last, last week? Proper attitude towards authority. This week, God is speaking to us about never-ending joy, about never ceasing in our prayer, about being thankful no matter what. And what fills our headlines from world news? France. 84 dead, senselessly murdered. A government coup attempt in Turkey. 60 more dead. And I sat there and I thought, God, you are speaking in a timely way to us. You are giving us the words we need when we need them. You know, sunny days at the beach teach us to be people who are joyful and prayerful and thankful, right? I mean, we can, we can, we can say these things on good days. I've read this passage at the start of a wedding. Hey, we're to rejoice always. We're to pray without ceasing. We're going to give thanks in all circumstances. This is an easy moment to do that. You're about to get married. We're all here for a joyous occasion. Sunny days teach us certain things. But you know, dark nights of the soul force us to go deeper, don't they? And when we do, we find the basis of our joy and gratitude is bedrock. It's more solid and firm than our superficial happy times had taught us previously. Dark nights of the soul are probably a better teacher for this than sunny days at the beach. You know, these three things go hand in hand. They kind of weave into our everyday life and they fuel one another. And as you pray with thanksgiving, aren't you joyful? And as you are thankful, your heart is led to pray and joy envelops you. As you experience joy, even in suffering, you are suddenly soaking in gratitude and you're beginning to pray that others would experience this joy that you have. Do you see how these all just kind of weave one into the other? One of the things that a preacher ought to do is apply the message to 
himself before preaching it to others. First Thessalonians 1 says this, We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. There you see it linked. How about 1 Thessalonians 3? For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake as we pray most earnestly? These all kind of weave in and out of one another and they, they fuel one another. I got an email from a guy named Larry. He's a friend of mine who's a missionary in Russia. And you talk about joy and prayer and gratitude in all situations. Here's how he opened his email to so many people who kind of, um, you know, are interested in, in his, in his time over there. He writes this, haven't heard about the prohibition of witnessing in Russia. Neither have most of my Russian friends. He goes on to lay out that the government is beginning to just kind of covertly do some things that say, you can preach the gospel all you want inside the church building. Everywhere else it's illegal. That's where it's headed, he feels like. Here's what he says about it. From a marketing and historical perspective, we could actually make a point that this ban on preaching the gospel is a good thing. Is he just being a shiny, happy Christian that isn't making sense? Listen. He says, when people have unlimited access, they really don't care. Tell them that they can't have it, and suddenly, people want to know what they're being deprived of. And he goes on to point out that the gospel is exploding in China because of this. Isn't it true that the, that the gospel took root as there was persecution, and they were forced to disperse into all different places, and wherever they went, they were preaching the good news of Christ? When we see the whole story at once, we forget that on day one, they're being persecuted for doing the right thing. I'm just trying to love people and speak the truth and live my life well, and I'm being punished for it. God, where are you? Giving joy, being thankful, running to God in prayer in all circumstances. This isn't just good advice. It's God's will. Let me tackle the last two verses very quickly. Paul goes on to teach of the importance of the Spirit's role in our life. Look at verse 27 for a moment. In verse 27, he says this, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. He's about to conclude the letter by saying, you read this to everyone. And Paul knew this was inspired scripture. He's saying, you read this to the churches. With that, he gives this instruction. Don't quench the spirit or despise the word of God. You see, ideas and things that are claimed matter. We shouldn't simply believe what the preacher says. We shouldn't simply believe what's fed to us. We ought to test it. I kind of thought about it this way. Have you ever panned for gold? When you pan for gold, you don't just grab some stuff where they say there's gold and be like, sweet, I'm rich, Right? You take it and you do the little pan thing and you swirl it around. I never found gold, but you know you kind of do the little deal and, and all of that. That's essentially what is being told to us, that when a prophetic word is given, and by the way, this was written at a time, in First Thessalonians, written at a time where we don't have the canon of Scripture. But when a prophetic word is given, that we're to test it, how do you test it? You test it against what's already been written. God doesn't make mistakes. He didn't change his mind. Oops, 300 years ago, I was kind of wrong on that one. So you test it, and you don't despise it, and then you keep what is good and passes the test. Um, you know, sometimes we hear things um, that someone is saying, and it makes us uncomfortable. And sometimes Christians are able to pass this off as, well, I didn't believe it because it didn't pass the smell test. 
Well, God didn't give us a scratch and sniff. He gave us a book, right? And it's called the Bible. So don't give me your, like, I didn't pass the smell test. That's too heebie-jeebie-feely. Like, show me what you're talking about. Sometimes we don't like what we're hearing, and it doesn't pass the smell test, not because it's rotten, but because it's making us feel uncomfortable. It doesn't line up with me and the God I'm forming in my mind. That's why God wrote it down. When something's important, what do we do? We write it down. God put it in writing. And so here we are to test those things. Let me invite the band to come on up. I want you to look at your bulletin for a moment. Do you see that it's what we claim plus how we walk? That little plus symbol is what defines us as Christians. The reason people have a lot of misconceptions about what a Christian really is is because that plus is missing. There's a lot of claiming going on, but there's not a lot of living. Or there's a lot of secret living going on, but heaven forbid I have to open my mouth about it and give testimony to explain what I'm doing. If you take communion and call your wife sister in front of other people, they might just think you're a cannibal and incestuous. Open your mouth and bear witness to what Jesus is doing. Otherwise, your neighbors will think, he's just a really swell guy. And even though I keep breaking all his tools, he's, he's a sucker. He keeps loaning them to me. There ought to be the naming of Jesus, the claiming of Jesus, and the walking of his life. The will of God is that we rejoice, that we pray, that we live in gratitude without end. That is a really powerful idea that a lot of people could grab onto. But it doesn't change our world or the world at large until we live it, until we walk in these truths. Here is why any Christian can rejoice at any time. Because you have been redeemed from the pit of hell. Because you've been gifted new life. Because you are seen as perfect and spotless, the life that you should have lived is a filthy resume of what we've actually lived, and we continue to heap on judgment even though we know better. And instead, Christ takes that resume, absorbs it, and hands us his resume and says, here is how you are seen on judgment day. Here is how you are able to relate to the Father as spotless, faultless. That is great news. Circumstances good, they're not that good. This is way better. Circumstances terrible doesn't change the fact that you're in God's family. Let me give you a little teaser to come back next week. We're going to close up this letter the way Paul does. He closes it with a benediction of hope. And here's one verse that's been firing me up all week. Verse 24, it says, Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Amen?